This is In Conversation from Network Reorient, in association with Reorient Journal and the Critical Muslim Studies Project. In this episode, I sit down with Salman Said to continue our discussion on Islamism as philosophy. Salam all. Uh, welcome to this continuation of uh, a discussion on Islamism as philosophy. I'm joined once again by Professor Said, uh, and we'll be tackling um, some more aspects of this discussion um, now. So, Professor Said, why should we still be interested in Islamism? Um, obviously, we've all seen what's been going on um, in the Muslim world. Uh, particularly recently in Tunisia and uh, Syria, where many commentators have um, heralded the failure of Islam, or uh, Islamism, I should say, in quotation marks. Um, so why are we still interested in this? I suppose the same people who would say um, Islamism has failed, um, look what's happening in Tunisia, look what's happening in Syria, what happened in Syria would often be also the people saying, oh, it succeeded, look what's happened in Kabul, Islamism is in the march, uh, etc. So one of the issues is this, that as long as we keep on treating Islamism not as a serious concept, but more of a punchline or a, or a headline for newspapers, um, we will not understand the phenomenon which continues to affect um, you know, many, many communities in the world, and I would say has a profound effect on the way the world is um, experienced uh, by large sections of the planet's population. So it's really, really important for us to not think about Islamism in these kind of trivial ways um, as some sort of league table of, you know, who is up, who is down, etc., and think about why is it that in the last, almost now, going on for 50 years. Mm. So many people in so many parts of the world respond to the idea, series of ideas, that being a Muslim means something other than at times of prayer or other than in the mosque, that somehow it means something about them in relation to public affairs. It means something to them in, in relation to um, being part of a society. If we treat that as a series of um, ideas or ways of thinking which have suddenly or seemingly suddenly become so um, prominent that in many aspects of what Muslimness has become, has become naturalized. If we mm. try and explain that, then it seems to me the ebbs and flows of these currents, and this is something that you know, I wrote in, 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 towards the end of Fundamental Fear, that you know, the, the, the fortunes of organizations and political parties which um, claim or, or are described as being Islamicist will vary over time. But what you have to think about is how there has been a shift and a continuing sh uh, shift 
in the kind of cultural comportment that imagines Muslimness as having a future in this world and having a future which cannot be contained in the divide between um, religion and state instituted by the enlightenment or self-description of itself instituting that and then accepted by the enlightenment. So um, just to quickly take you back to the beginning um, to answer to this question, you said people don't take Islamism seriously and it's like if you don't take it seriously it's like a punchline and then you can say in Kabul and Syrian what have you. So would this then be taking Islamism seriously where you don't put it between uh, the state and um, sorry remind me what you said. Um, no I, yeah. I, I, I would say I, I, I think to take Islamism seriously you have to move it away from this idea of a very superficial understanding of what let's say um, the role of thinking is in politi shaping political mm. uh, practices. Now one argument would be, well, actually, um, thinking is epiphenomenal. It's simply a reflection of material conditions. That's the kind of classical Marxist argument. And for a variety of reasons, I think the critique of that linear relationship between um, one element, like the economy, and uh, this, the kind of superstructure element, is something that I'm incredibly persuaded by, and I don't think there's been an answer to that. So once you abandon that political ideas, political mm -hmm. arguments, and viewpoints are simply a surface on what's really going on in the material, once you abandon that relationship, then you have to think about how our sense of who we are, how we shape the world around us, what are the mechanisms we use, what is the language? And the language here is not simply a linguistic act, as we've you know, mm -hmm. established long ago. It's also not just a representation, but it's also a constitution of um, the way that we experience the world. Um, and therefore, we're looking at those kinds of phenomena. So Islamism is one way of thinking about Muslimness, which stands in contrast to the kind of dominant trend which thought of Muslimness as something to be abandoned or something to be grown out of, but certainly something that did not really have a future. Mm. And Islamism is paradoxically an insistence that Muslimness has a future. And if you understand Islamism as the insistence on the, you know, the idea of Muslimness having a future, then it seems to me um, these kinds of ebbs and flows of particular organizations and particular parties and events are not sufficient in themselves to dent that possibility mm -hmm. or to undermine that imaginative leap that Muslimness has a future, therefore Muslims can have a future. Okay. Now, if we had to take Islamism as, um, as you seem to imply that, Islamism is um, the idea of giving Muslims 
a future or Muslimness a future, um, why should we take that as what Islamism is as opposed to what already exists? So you have various people saying Islamism is a political movement or an ideology. What is it about Muslimness in the future that distinguishes itself from being encapsulated within the concept of political movement or ideology? I think the, the real issue is that it is the poverty of what often is described as ideology and the poverty, uh, conceptual poverty of what is described as political movements. And what I mean by this is that um, in the case of political movements of the global south or outside the west, there is a hierarchy which manifests itself in the way in which those movements are never or rarely given the kind of recognition of their profound nature mm. than compared to other historical movements or transformations. So in that sense, the, um, and you can see this very clearly in a kind of a very, what I would say, a very limited sense of ideology. What is ideology? It's a system of ideas. And what does it normally mean? It simply means that you look at the work of a number of people, let's say Qutub, Madhudi, if you wanted to be ecumenical, Khomeini, Shariati, um, and say, well, they believe this and they believe that and they contradict each other, therefore it's incoherent. I mean, that's one mm -hmm. classical way of analysis. Another analysis would be that simply say, well, they believe in these things, but they don't really, these things don't really belong in the modern world, etc., etc. It doesn't really explain why that kind of articulation of particular themes resonates. Because what is at the heart of all of this is the emergence and consolidation of Muslim political identity. So one way to think about why I think, you know, thinking about Islamism in broader terms is that it recognizes the relationship between the cultural and the political. Mm. Um, a lot of the literature on Islamism understands the political in a very limited sense of it's basically what particular types of actors do in particular domains. Or there is another kind of literature which is very kind of often informed by a particular kind of um, anthropology and, um, and ethnography, which seems to focus on what it describes as culture. And we get into this question about the authenticity of one particular formula, uh, formulation or not. So, for example, you'll often hear um, there is something called Indonesian Islam and they don't wear particular clients of clothes which come from the Gulf and when you see them wearing that this is really an imposition um, and there's no sense of their agency and there's already an idea well actually Islam is this way or that way or the Indonesian Islam is something which has historically always been this which is not the case mm. or so-called Arabian Islam is something this yeah um, and rather than seeing that Islam in many ways is a product of the relationship between the Muslims have with each other, there's an umetic mm -hmm. nexus, the relationship they have with the Quran and all the Kalamath literature, mm -hmm. both as, but as communities of readers rather than individuals, and a relationship with their history. 
mm. in a sense of their understanding of how they are when when they are. So in a sense, what you're talking about, Islamism is a construction of Muslim uh, Muslim political identity, and therefore to focus only on movements and organizations which seem to locate that in particular actions rather than saying, so how do you explain, which can be easily documented, the prevalence of Muslim men wearing beards, now growing beards, compared to, you know, 40 years ago. Mm. Or the classical example, which is always used, of course, is the, the um, how many Muslim women wearing the hijab who are going to university, etc., who are... Um, you know, it's always seen as a remarkable thing. Why would they be doing this? Um, or certain kinds of normalization of the rejection of Islam and Muslimness being a scandal mm. in Muslim circles and things like that. So there's, there's less um, contestation around it. There's less embarrassment around it. There's less kind of thing, well, yeah, we do this. And that's what we do. Yeah. yeah. End of the story. Whereas it's not a kind of an attempt to explain and apologize for that. For so that, that kind of rejection mm. of that apologia mm. um, tradition, which, which is, you know, people say, well, this is something only experienced by Muslims in the diaspora. I mean, my argument, of course, is that all Muslims are in the diaspora yeah. in some way <laughs> or the other. But more seriously, I would say, no, this is something that has been experienced. Uh, by the Muslim Ummah, whether they live in areas which are dominated by the Islamic state or uh, not. So this is something that comes up quite a bit, actually. And I'd want to ask: Could you give an example of where, like, an example of where you see this in Muslim majority contexts as well? Could you give an example? I mean, things are leaving aside the problematic notion of Muslim majority yeah. and things like that, because yeah. we can see something. But let's take something uh, very, very simple. Okay. In some countries, um, the idea of modernity mm. and modernization was completely dominated by a Western imaginary. Mm. So when they wanted to be modern, they thought they had to behave in this way and they had to eat this food, they had to comport themselves in a particular way. And to men... To a large extent, you would say that, you know, a large percentage of um, the population in, in, in the Muslim Ummah has, did, has and continues to buy into that. Yeah. And you can find them in Morocco or Tunisia or Pakistan or Turkey or Iran. And they have very, very different labels, but they have some common themes. Mm. And the common themes may be... Um, you know, the way that they, for example, um, associate the their themselves and with a future which they would describe in which Islam is 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 um, of cosmetic significance. I mean, the clearest dimension is this: that in twenty years of occupation in. Uh, of uh, American occupation or Western occupation in Afghanistan, you actually produced a cadre of people mm. who um, think of themselves or a part of that kind of global communion, mm. speak English or speak English, um, 
talk about democracy and liberalism, practice very little of it, um, and have no sense of irony when they talk about the Taliban being a proxy for a foreign power, when the regime that they worked for the last 20 years was basically... A proxy, a, a proxy yeah. Not only a proxy, it was an absolute puppet mm. and established by a foreign power. So they, they internalize a lot of the xenophobia, mm. uh, national xenophobia. They internalize a certain hostility to Islam. So, so for example, um, one of the things about female education. Now, it is coming to light that, for example, um, much of the educational effort by NGOs would not allow for teaching in Pashto or Dari, the insistence on English. Mm. Which again, most pedagogues around the world would say that actually teaching in your own, uh, in a language that you grew up in, is much more easier if that's mm. your Im image there. So it, it is a, but also they would not allow, for example, teaching of um, religion. Again, if you really can, were concerned about the interpretation that the Taliban had about Islam, then empowering women by being able to read the Quran and contest that would actually be a resource mm. rather than basically fingers, pointing yeah. fingers at them and saying, well, you know, whatever that. So why was that not a possibility? So you have this shaping of subjectivities. Mm. And this happened, you know, okay, in Afghanistan, but I would say to you, this is a kind of slow process. If you go to Egypt, um, you'll find that many of those who condemned to the high rafters the Morrissey government, which ruled for one year for its, its horrendous violence, its violations, were not only silent, but often complicit with mm. the LCC regime. And this is not just a failure of one or two individuals, and I don't really want to, you know, point that out to anyone, but it is something which is systemic. Mm. That with great regularity, those who are often represented as liberals, Democrats and moderns, yeah. are often on the side of tyranny. Hmm. So I think to you know to, to fix upon this then really is the recognition that Islamism has to be understood as a questioning of that arrangement because that is how it actually continues to work and array itself. So hmm. wherever you say um, you want to distance your, whether it's in Saudi Arabia, um, you know, I said this many, many years ago, and um, uh, people thought it was absurd, but when you, or when the UEE, so what happens next? Mm. The next thing they do, they are in, um, forging an alliance with um, people carrying out repressions of Muslims. Mm. They're doing this in the name of a nationalism, which is shorn of the Islamic influence in mm. many ways, or they're trying to present themselves. They're building these billion, trillion dollar cities in the desert um, as these kind of basically colonial uh, enclaves, you know, that they would have. Oh, um, all of that is not new. It is mm. something that has been a feature of the architecture of colonialism. Um, the only odd thing is that it's been uh, outsourced now. 
mm. to those authoritarian regimes. Yeah. So if, if you want the examples of this kind of embarrassment, this kind of... Yeah. They're legion. Mm. Um, and they go from the macabre to the mildly comic, um, you know, um, to attempts to create... We want to have art. We want to demonstrate that we have art. So what do we do? We franchise the Louvre. Uh, rather than building, you know, own, rather yeah. than building your own kind of art, giving artists um, kind of... And that's just commonplace. I mean, I, you know, any... Mm. Yeah, I, I find it hard to find any Muslim um, with any kind of um, critical imagination who can't find... You know, who can't find many of these examples. She'll be able to see them all the time. Mm. Mm. Okay. I want to kind of change tack slightly, but still obviously keep to our theme. Um, so obviously the theme has been uh, Islamism as philosophy. Okay. So we've kind of gone through the Islamism bit. Now I want to focus more on the philosophy side of things. To say Islamism is a philosophy is to try to interrupt a certain story that's told about philosophy. So I'm going to ask the question in a very tongue-in-cheek way. Did the Greeks invent philosophy? Well, what you call tongue-in-cheek is actually a huge, huge debate. <laughs> because obviously the answer to that depends on what you think philosophy is. Mm. And you know this, I mean, there was a huge controversy before probably you were born around Black Athena, you know, um, where Martin Bernal um, advanced the proposition, which had been made by many, many African-American scholars before, and other scholars, I mean, not just African-American scholars, African scholars, about the influence on ancient Greek. Uh, from Egypt and other parts of the uh, of the Eastern Mediterranean, and there was an incredible uproar about this, and because at the end of the day, if philosophy is not Greek, it is unsettling, because what that does undermine the status of philosophy within. Um, the Western enterprise. And I think that's important because the way that, you know, uh, Plato to NATO is not just, mm. um, it's just not a nice soundbite. There's some sort of element of um, significance to it and meaning to it. Now, I think people are more willing to think about philosophy in, in broader terms. So there are, you know, literature developing about um philosophy before the Greeks, uh, philosophy not as a specific historical moment, but one of many historical moments in which certain types of reflections became possible in a number of... Initially, argument would be that philosophy, in a sense, emerges uh, at the cusp of the emergence of writing, or so, you know, when writing becomes... Uh, demotic, or some would argue it emerges, um, you know, the axial age where sort of there's a rise in consciousness because you have the emergence of um, intellectuals, set people who are no longer, uh, who are separated from that. 
But there is a sort of sense in which, um, you know, there's a sort of contemporarity that, you know, something you can see in a fictional form by William um, Gore Vidal's uh, evocative novel Creation, where you can position more or less with some sort of historical veracity, the Buddha, Confucius, um, Thucydides, Herodotus, Zarathustra, at least, if not in the same lifetime, but being within the generation of each other, so you can make the connection there. Well, again, the veracity of that accounts is not the key here, but the plausibility of it is. That in different places around the world, um, people began to reflect. Now, it seems to me that if you think of philosophy simply as the ability to um, reflect on um, things that have, on what has been naturalized, then I'm not sure you would be able to make a very, very strong case that only the Greeks did it. Now, having said that, um, classical Western accounts of philosophy do precisely do that. They would say things like, well, you have in the East, leaving aside where that may be, wisdom literature, mm. but it's only in the, with the Greeks that you have um, specific kinds of reflections which are abstract and universal, which can take, um, which can be used to understand the world, not just their world. Mm. But that claim for the universality of the West is something that we are constantly reoccurs itself. So I think, um, you know, I would argue that depending on what you want to understand by philosophy, there is no reason to simply locate it in, in the Greeks. So there's never been a satisfactory reason why it would occur. So why would it happen in Greece? If there was a philosophical explosion in Greece, why Greece? Okay. Mm -hmm. um, now, the only sort of old-fashioned answer, which had a certain consistency of uh, illogic to it, or, was because the Greeks are white. And it was a racial argument that there's something about mm -hmm. the um, Greeks um, which allows them to make this kind of intelligent leap which other races, to use the vernacular of the time, cannot do so. Mm. Now, the thing with that argument is that it is consistent. Now, once you abandon that racial argument for a variety of reasons, because you can't hold on to the notion of race as an independent variable, then you are locked into, well, there's a culture. And that's when things become really, really tricky, because if you want to say well, philosophy is a function of democratic culture and the Greek polis function that, we kind of know, and this is, you know, the work that's been done, that the polis, the idea of the city-state and working in these, through these assemblies, etc., was not uniquely Greek. Um, you know, the Sumerians, and you know how the fondness of them anyway, um, did that. The Phoenicians did that, and there were, you know you would find Indian republics. There are so many, many instances you can find them in, in what we now call West Africa. You can find them in many parts of the world. So that idea, and in fact, the carry on consist, you know, carried on for a long time, but that doesn't hold. So then, and also it doesn't hold because you know everyone talks about Athens, but Sparta was mm -hmm. also Greek, um, and you know 
had a very different organization. So I would say to you that if you abandon the racial and its euphemism as cultural argument, then explaining the uniqueness of the philosophical endeavor as being a Greek endeavor becomes really, really um, challenging. Mm. Um, because then you have to find what is so specific about... What's so special about the Greeks yeah, rather yeah, than anybody else, yeah, basically. Yeah, that only they could come up with philosophy. And unless you can answer that question, then it seems to me you can't really make that kind of claim for it. The whole thing falls down. Yeah. Okay. So then how does this then impact our understanding of Islamism as philosophy? So what story do we need to tell for Islamism as philosophy then to make sense, even? I think, to be fair, the, t- the idea of the title of uh, the book as Islamism as philosophy mm. is probably provocative. Oh, probably, maybe. (laughs) I I don't know whether it'll provoke anyone, but perhaps I was being mischievous about this. Um, Because of two things. One, it really is what would happen if you started treating Islamism as a kind of philosophical type reflection. What does that do to the character of philosophy? And I think you mentioned that. Mm. That's the question that it asks. But also... The question is, you know, is sort of deconstructive in both senses, both of Islamism and of philosophy. Mm. And one of the things is this: that you know, many many people have. It is wonderful to see so many um, academics throughout the planet uh, embrace with such gusto the decolonial and remember or recall the colonial instance of everything. But it would be interesting to see whether a book which is titled Islamism as Philosophy is ever treated as a book about the nature of philosophy rather mm-hmm. than a book which will tell you whether, um, you know, what is going on in the mind of X. Um, islamicist or mm. something like that. Now, you know, there are many, many reasons for not doing that, but that to me, for me, is a kind of a interesting, mildly interesting thing for me. <laughs> okay. Um, thank you very much, Professor Zaid, and I hope to uh, continue this conversation with you soon. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is another episode of In Conversation, brought to you by Network Reorient, the podcast arm of Critical Muslim Studies. Thank you for tuning in. Have a listen to our other episodes and please leave a like and a rating.